Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So, friends, uh, welcome back and... Happy Easter. To, happy Easter, yes, Yay! indeed. Happy Easter to everyone. We hope that your celebration... Hallelujah, um, risen indeed. He, he is. <laughs> uh, was wonderful on Sunday and that it would continue for the next 50 days because Easter is a season, not just a day. Um, but before we entered Lent a few weeks ago, we were in a series at the beginning of the year on justice. And we, we spent a lot of time looking at um, the Bible's de- definition of justice. We went from Genesis 1 to, to Revelation. All the way to maps. <laughs> All the way to maps and everything in between. And, and we promised you right before Lent that we would come back to the series and look more at, now that we've done the biblical stance and looked at what the Bible has to say, how do we apply that to our everyday life? So Sarah, where are we going to kick off for today? Yeah, so today we are going to talk about environmental justice, um, which, you know, how do we as Christians care for God's creation? And I think uh, we're going to narrow this down to, like, the world, our planet, and, like, the animals that live on this planet. Um, Because we'll definitely talk about how we treat each other as God's creation later on, but I think for today it's... The planet and the animals and the creatures that are non-human. And that's how I'm going to define I, it. I think right? that's I think that's wise. That's those are good parameters. That's, that's a big enough world for us to be responsible for. But and I I don't mean this as as a joke. Although I realize right now we're only responsible for Earth because this is the only place there's humans on. Yeah. But there is a piece of me that thinks the things we talk about about how we're supposed to take care of the third planet from the sun, like, it is possible in our lifetimes that we'll find humans taking ventures out to Mars or things like that. And it, to me, it feels like, again, maybe this is just the, the science fiction nerd in me thinking, one day we'll be having mining colonies on Mars or on the asteroids. But, like, whatever principles we talk about, about how we're responsible not to waste things or just to despoil them for making a quick buck, whatever is true about that on Earth, in some sense, we're called to have a similar kind of stewardship for the rest of creation as well. Mm-hmm. Even if... Part of the issue with caring for creation on Earth is that there's life on Earth, and there's it's less likely that we're going to be disturbing a tropical rainforest on Mars or a swamp on the asteroid series. Um, it seems important, at least, to say whatever principles we develop here about what justice looks like for how we care for creation, at some point we'll have to think about what would that mean as, if human beings step on other on other places. Well, I mean, because we we as humans have only stepped foot on. Earth and Mars. Moon. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, our, our moon. Um, but our technology has now reached much further yeah, than that, yeah. right? Like we have a satellite that's way in the outer reaches of our solar system now. In the Oort cloud. It's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. So, like, we are learning so much about our solar system because of these cool, like, satellites and um, the Mars rovers. That's yeah. why I said Mars, because I'm oh, specifically yeah. thinking yeah. of our rovers. Yeah. Um, and that is so exciting. But that also means that we are projecting trash out into the solar system that eventually those rovers on Mars sadly die and then they just kind of sit on Mars 
and there are satellites who after a while stop transmitting back to us and they just continue floating into nothingness for forever. And I think that that is also, you know, that and there's like satellites orbiting our planet and like eventually how many satellites are we going to have just orbiting our planet? Like I think that we also, as exciting as it is that we're learning so much about our solar system, we should be concerned about the amount of trash that we are just shooting up into the sky. Well, and there it seems to me like there's, there's again, I don't want us to get off all just because of my, my science fiction nerdery on like the ethics of, of satellites and being on other planets. But like part of our concern on how do we manage the space junk right now on Earth is the concern is what would happen if one would crash land and kill somebody or land on somebody's farm or hurt something. So like there's a concern for life there. And again, how do we manage what, what are our responsibilities to other parts of the universe if there's not life there? And I, I guess I would think we should come down on, we have some responsibility not to just leave the universe a messier place than we found it, regardless of whether there's life there. In a, in a way similar to like the Grand Canyon is basically a large hole in the ground, but it seems like it would be a poor stewardship to fill it with trash because we can. And so similarly, I think it would be wrong to treat the universe like, well, it's mostly empty space. We can just throw garbage out there. Who cares? Um, and whether it's on a planet or an asteroid or whatever, obviously space is a lot bigger than Earth, so there's there's more room for us to throw trash for a while before anybody notices. <laughs> um, but I, I guess I guess the, the reason I wanted us to go down this rabbit trail is part of, in part the idea that while right now human beings are limited to basically one planet and one moon, it's not it's not that a big a stretch of the imagination that in our lifetimes we could be expanding to other planets even in exploratory kind of ways. And at first nobody thinks of it as we're leaving trash on other planets, but at some point when it becomes profitable to start mining something somewhere else, yeah, what what responsibility do we have to leave things in, in a certain condition for future us, for future, I don't know. What happens if, big if, but what happens if a probe going to Europa and moon of Jupiter discovers microbial life uh, that has sprung up there. Like, our, our theology isn't exactly prepared for, boy, what does it mean if it turns out that God's made life in other parts of the universe? That's going to make us feel smaller yet again. <laughs> um, but what what obligation do we have to guard life that isn't earthy in life? Or are we just only concerned about our kind of life? And there, the other life would be foreigner life. We don't care about it. I, I don't know. But I guess these are questions that at some point are worth exploring. And maybe first bring it a little bit closer to home, too. All right. In the world, in the neighborhood, in the places where we live... What kind of responsibility do we have for caring for creation? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Well, this, I think this is a hot topic for Christians because there seems to be two strains of thought. Um, my, my grandparents were Southern Baptists, and... For them, they were constantly just waiting for the rapture. Mm -hmm. That Jesus was going to call us all home to the kingdom of heaven. And they didn't seem to have, or the new earth, I'm not really sure what terminology they used. But for them, it was like, "Mm, yes, we should take care of the planet. But even if we mess it up and we pollute it, who cares because God is going to fix it all. Mm-hmm. and Or that we're going to be on the new earth or the new Jerusalem. Um, we're not sure what that exactly looks like, but it's not here. So even if we do pollute and trash this planet, it's okay. Um, that all of 
of these resources are for us to use. God has given them to us. Therefore, if we use up all of this one resource, again, that's okay because God gave us those resources. As opposed to the other side of the coin, which says that, no, God created creation and uh, we were given dominion over it as in uh, as it says in Genesis 1 verse 26 then God said let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth and that's New Revised Standard Version um, and there are other uh, versions that ha uh, use a different language other than like dominion. But basically we're given stewardship over all of these things and that as the, as the folks with the opposable thumbs and with like the good communication skills, you know, that God has blessed, we need to be the ones to make sure that like everything else is okay. That the, that we don't like have that we don't hunt a certain species to extinction, that we preserve, you know, the habitats of other creatures so that they don't go extinct, that we don't pollute the earth because God has given us this creation to take care of. It, it seems um, interesting to me, um, even though like the, the maybe the, the, the most broad case for human beings as stewards comes, like you say, from Genesis 1, 26 and 27, um, that even in the, the Old Testament commandments of the Torah, there is a sense of part of what it meant to have dominion wasn't that you're free to just exploit, but that there were there were to be limits. Like, like say, yeah. don't hunt something to extinction. Or even the commandment that seems arcane to us of don't boil a kid in its mother's milk was a way of saying like, like, even just for self-preservation purposes, don't wipe out both generations, the parent generation and the kid generation of what you're raising, or you'll have no more animal left that you can eat. So the way it gets phrased, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk, is really meant at, like, don't wipe out the whole species here. So if you're going to be, you know, if you're, if you're raising animals, don't kill the baby and the parent. You want to be able to produce more of these things. Don't eat yourself into extinction of your... I mean, there's also a self-preservation yeah. thing too, I guess. But I think there's, there's a sense that the Torah even understands that we're all connected, not just all humans to each other, but that all, all creatures are connected to each other and our well-being is connected, is, is tied up and bound up in the well-being of other, other creatures as well. You know, one of the issues I have, you know, I, I'm one that doesn't necessarily really follow the new, you know, yes, there's going to be a, a second something. I don't know what that looks like, but not in the same way that your grandparents did, Sarah. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things that bothers me about that is just even thinking generations down the line before Jesus comes back. You know, so say God does create this completely new heaven and earth and replaces what we currently have. Fine and dandy, that's, you know, whatever. I'm not going to argue theology with people over that, but like... What about your your grandkids and your great grandchildren? Like, what kind of world are you leaving for them? You know, if you're not taking care of the one that you have now, and we're we're feeling that from your grandparents' yeah. generation, my grandparents' generation, and those before us. It it seems to me like part of that the 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 mindset that is that that makes it okay to not take care of creation is because that often gets paired with like. Uh, an end times urgency like it because Jesus is coming in is going to be so soon we know it'll be so soon it'll be in the next 40 years it'll be in the next whatever that we you know we won't have time for worrying about our kids or our grandkids and my goodness we've been doing this for 2000 years here the earliest Christians were if you would have asked St. Paul he would have said I'm sure Jesus is going to come back in my lifetime mm -hmm. so Paul turned out to be wrong on that one um, and 
Christians for the last 2,000 years have been doing that same thing. So it seems at the very least that a certain amount of humility and wisdom for us in this era would be to say, it could be he'll come back tomorrow, but we should also be prepared for the world that we will give to our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And if I have to hedge my bets one side or the other, it'd be better to be prepared for the long haul and to end up not needing it. I mean, like, that that just seems like common sense. It's, it's kind of like the urban legend of somebody once asked Martin Luther, right. what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? And Martin Luther replied in this urban legend, because this probably didn't actually happen, but he replied, I would plant an apple tree today. That, you know, that that is part of what we are called to do for Christians, as Christians, is to, yes, have faith that Jesus is coming back, but also continue to care for creation, as well as, I think, the apple tree is a nice touch, because apples are something that we eat, it's something we press into cider, like, it's a, like... Yeah, well, it's a, use it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's not like, um... You know, other trees, which don't actually give us anything but wood, they're still useful, they still clean the air, but... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, fruit trees, that's, that's a nice touch. Uh, Martin Luther, who probably did not actually say it, but... Apocryphal, like, Apocryphal Luther, that was a good right. thing to say. <laughs> sounds like something he would have said. It, well, and I guess I, I think it's important that he, whether or not Martin Luther said it or not, the, the notion of that, that being kind of our, our posture as Christians is, yeah, we have no idea how long it will be until Jesus' return comes. So we can have deep, absolute certainty that he will come again and, that, and at the last all will be made well and the new creation of Revelation 21 will fill all creation. But in the meantime, we don't know how long it will be and we are called in the meantime to, to keep doing what we were instructed to do in the beginning. In the beginning in Genesis be good stewards over all this. I was I was reading an article not long ago that suggested a better translation for that have dominion over is that the Hebrew is better rendered something like have skilled mastery among all these other things, which is sort of a way of saying like, yeah, uh, among all the beings on earth, like you said, human beings have opposable thumbs. So we can do stuff that other creatures can't. We invent language, we invent technology. There's There's lots of ways that we can do cool stuff and that like, that isn't meant that we're allowed to dominate other things, but we're meant to excel in the ways that we can excel alongside the rest of creation and not mess it up. <laughs> um, but even that imagery in Genesis 2 about humans as gardeners, a gardener's job, you get to, I suppose, eat the produce of the garden, but your job is to take care of it so that it produces, right? So, I mean, like, your job is not to over-harvest so the plants all die off or to pick the unripe things today and not have any ripe ones that you can eat later on. You also can't overeat the produce, mm-hmm. though, because certain of those produce you need to preserve right. to plant, again, like potatoes. You know, you right. can't, like take out the seeds. Right. No, you chop it up so that each piece of potato has a couple of eyes and then you drop that in the ground and that's your start to your new potato plant. Yeah. And that awareness, I mean, again, it, it's it, just the imagery of being a gardener suggests that you're allowed to enjoy the, the produce, but you have to do it in such a way that allows the garden to continue. That you, You're there for the betterment of the garden and the garden is there so that you can eat. That It's, it's symbiotic and that the the early chapters of Genesis understand that and seem to say that's what human beings are made for, is this symbiosis, this interdependency, not one on top, but maybe even the way like the, the rest of the Bible understands good leadership is really serving. That, yeah, okay, you could say we have dominion, but it's always a servant kind of dominion. So the gardener is the boss of the garden, but the gardener has to carry the fertilizer around and smell like dung. Um, so there's a certain amount of, yeah, if you're the boss, that means you're supposed to take care of things, not that you get to spoil it. 
Okay, so I think at this point we can all agree that we should care for our creation. Good, you've you've persuaded me. (laughs) Yes, so what can we do as 21st century Christians to care for creation? Because I think we could also agree that we have some issues with how we yeah. care for creation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And and I think one piece, especially in the in the country and culture where we live, is consumerism sort of like eclipses all of our sense of responsibility. And mm-hmm. so there's just the sense of I should have the right to buy as much as I want whenever I want it with immediate convenience with a little drone delivering it to my door um without any sense of Maybe that's not responsible in how much stuff you know how much how much stuff money is is spent or resources are spent in packaging and shipping and all that kind of thing, and do I really need it now? I mean I think that's one piece is awareness of consumerism I think a, a, a piece that's missing in my life that I've become aware of in the past couple of years is so many of us, especially as twenty first century Americans, we've lost that connection of growing our food Mm -hmm. that it used to be like when my grandparents were young um and not just my southern baptist grandparents (laughs) grandparents in general um that everybody had a kitchen garden Mm -hmm. that especially during world war ii like that was the patriotic thing to do everybody would have a victory garden they would grow part of their food and they would have a flock of hens and that was just kind of part of your effort in the war was to grow have these gardens but I think having that connection, that direct connection of I planted something in the earth, I took care of it, I tended it, I harvested it, now I'm eating it or putting it away in some way that I will be able to continue to eat it in the coming months, I think is really helpful. Um, I watched a documentary on YouTube recently of this guy who moved to Florida because he wanted to challenge himself for an entire year to eat only things he grew or forged. So he grew, so he moved to Florida because he was more confident in his ability to grow plants all year long in Florida, as opposed to like where we are in Pennsylvania, where (laughs) you only have a couple of months of growing season and then it gets all cold. Um, and, and he did it. He, he moved he moved there. He, he he had six months to kind of lay the groundwork before his actual, like, I'm no longer buying things from stores. And he took that time to get to know his neighbors. He planted his yard full of food, and he talked to his neighbors and helped them plant gardens. Mm-hmm. And he would, like, take like be a primary caretaker as well as teach them how to take care of their garden. So, like, after his experiment was over, they would still have their garden. But he basically had this community garden in the front lawns of this entire neighborhood. And it was a really cool thing that he did. And, like, he clearly had some issues. Like, um, he planted something and he's like, this was going, this is going to be a great source of protein. And then the squirrels came and ate all of it. And he's like, oh, no, now I have squirrels. And so he was trying to figure out what to do. And then so he ended up... Um, catching and eating some of the squirrels. <laughs> and there you go, protein. <laughs> um, all this conversation about re- rediscovering that connection between the food that you eat and having grown it or understanding where it comes from and all that reminds me, one of my favorite poems of Wendell Berry's is a short one and it's called Prayer After Eating. And the prayer goes like this, prayer poem goes like this. I have taken in the light that hath quickened eye and leaf 
May my brain be bright with praise of what I eat in the brief blaze of motion and of thought. May I be worthy of my meat. And I like this idea that to, to eat anything is eventually to eat a plant and before that to have somehow taken in the sunlight that powered the plant. To the, like Every act of eating is in a sense taking in the light. I like that notion, but also that sense of realizing the connection of all the steps along the way that other things give up their lives so that we can live and to appreciate that then also leads you to have like the sense of may I, may I do something worthy of uh, the sacrifice that other life forms have given up so that I can eat. It, it's not a guilt trip of like you should feel sad that a cow died but more like this awareness of there's this awesome responsibility. If your life is powered by the life of other things that cease to exist so that you can live man, do something that makes you worthy of your meat. Um, and to realize even the miracle that an, an act of eating is in some sense to take in the light. I, I, I love that that imagery of his. But I think there's some, that, that, that to me suggests there's a deep spirituality even in what we eat and where what we eat comes from and that awareness too. And even how you treat the animals that become your food seems important. It, again, it, it reminds me of in the Torah the idea that on the Sabbath even your animals get rest. In the Sabbath year, the, the land gets rest. That there is this sense in the Old Testament scriptures of part of having dominion is that you treat the land and the creatures that live on the land well, even though, yeah, you're going to eat them, but that treat them well anyway because they're made in the image of God. So that maybe even care for creation gets down to things like how are the animals that are raised in whatever farms, are they like in giant factory farms or are they, you know, able to actually see sunlight and are they able to eat like things that their bodies are made to eat that, you know, rather than just being force fed, you know, stuff like that. Um, and that seems an important, like there, there are a number of even big public restaurant chains that are making the commitments that they're going to have ethically sourced pork or chicken or whatever. And it is at least worth exploring that, not just as the trendy thing to do, but to say maybe do we have an obligation to spend a little bit money, more money because it matters how the animals that we eat are treated, even even if it doesn't taste any different. And again, to me, like it's a question of if, if it's just, oh, it tastes better, then that's back to consumerism. It's because well, I, I get a value out of it. And it seems to me the part of environment, environmental justice, creation justice, is saying maybe it doesn't matter about whether I get any benefit out of it. I belong to something bigger, and it's good if this is helpful for some other creature. And it's not just how the animals are treated while they're alive, but how they're harvested. Sure. Yeah, I think we live in an area where deer hunters are yeah. just, you know, by and large, it, it's huge. And while I personally don't hunt, um, because I would never actually... I enjoy deer meat uh, when somebody else prepares it and does all the work to harvest it. It is a certain amount of labor, right? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it bothers me sometimes when folks just, just hunt deer just for this, the sport of it, just for the trophy of the, the antlers or the, mm-hmm. or the head or something, you know, where I appreciate my friends who hunt so they can feed their families. Sure. Because, again, it's getting them back to the environment and, and trying to, you know, um, just, just knowing where your food comes from. Sure. Uh, but I think even consumer food, you know, not only is it humanely treated while it's alive, you know, the, the cattle, the chickens, whatever, but also humanely killed so that sure. it can become your hamburger, your, your chicken breast, whatever it is, too. It seems to me, too, like, and uh, I don't want this to become a whole other rabbit trail, but, like, one of the tensions in American history, it seems to me, is, like, when you had Europeans come to this continent and... 
assumed that they were superior to the native population that was living here because they had technological advances like guns that could kill things a lot faster. The assumption was, oh, Europeans must be better or more advanced or more civilized because we found a way to kill things faster. And look how many more mouths we can feed faster by using guns to kill things. And the, I think sometimes the, the native population is treated like... like um, like they were little children, like, oh, you, you, you just aren't as advanced as us. And I think, I think they had an, uh, an awareness and a wisdom of, no, we could kill them faster if we wanted to. Um, we could use bow and arrow to do it. But, like, there's a, there's a, a reason to taking the, the pace of we don't want to wipe out these creatures or else our way of life will end. And what do you know? You get enough people with enough guns and we did wipe out all the, the herds of buffalo that reigned in like it's just to me it seems like just because you can you can do something faster with more technology doesn't mean that's automatically a better way to do things mm-hmm. it may be short-sightedly a, a smart plan or look how many more how much more profit you can rake in but as far as trying to have a way of life that lasts for a long long time that that doesn't pan out the, the same way it is in the short term maybe cheaper to just buy nothing but mcdonald's french fries and hamburgers and that takes less time than it would to prepare something at your house that's healthier but in the in the long run that's going to sign you up for heart disease and you know diabetes and death um so i guess i think like part of this is being willing to take a long view again of like not just assuming well the world's going to end soon so who cares but we should be prepared for generations and generations and generations how do we leave the world in as least a good a condition as we found it in. Um, I, I wonder if we might also talk about being willing to be inconvenienced for little steps that can make mm-hmm. a difference. Because mm-hmm. I think this is another hang-up, too. And to me, it seems like this is a piece of the consumeristic culture we live in, that, like, I should be able to throw things away as as much as I want because I paid for it, I and mean, I'm a consumer, and I'm you know the buck stops with me, the consumer, rather than, you know what, it may take an additional step to rinse out plastic so that it can be recycled, but that's worth it because then it's not just filling in some dump somewhere. But that it's it's a mindset change, I think, because so many of us still just live with the assumption that I'm free to do whatever I want. That's the beauty of freedom. That's You can't tell me what to do and you can't boss me around. And therefore, if I want to be wasteful with my money, I can. And to me, that seems like, no. <laughs> that That's not how it goes. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to the day, and I hope that this day comes soon, and that it actually does come, that bulk food stores become easily accessible to everyone. Mm. That in certain cities, like big cities, you can go to stores with your glass containers and actually fill your glass containers full of pasta and flour and sugar and, you know, all of those things that normally would come in some sort of, like, packaging, like, plastic or cardboard with plastic in it. Um, And, but these bulk food stores, and I'm not talking, like, Costco, but, like, um, you know, you do have to take that extra step of taking your own containers, making sure you know the weight of your containers so that when you're at the checkout, you can just weigh um, and know that, oh, I have a pound of pasta in this glass con- glass jar. Um, I'm going to pay for my pound of pasta and not also my, you know, three grams of glass that's <laughs> holding the pound of pasta. Um But I'm looking forward to that day because, yes, that's going to be super inconvenient, but what a way to dramatically reduce Mm single-use plastic. Sure, sure, sure. And I think there's a number of steps like that that in some places it is easier than in other – like I even think things like public transportation. One of those like if you live in a place where there's good public transportation – it makes sense to learn to use it, whether it's subway or bus or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult when you live in a place where that isn't a reality Mm -hmm. and – 
instead of just automatically saying, well, nobody can judge my, you know, judge my preferences for what I do because I'm free to, you know, drive my car as much as I want. Well, okay. But like, again, it's a question of having a sense of stewardship of the world in which we live and trying to make things nice for the other people around us. Mm -hmm. Um, to me, it feels like we have this very, very narrow sense of, I look out for me and my family and it doesn't matter how this affects other people. Whereas the, the biblical witness says, no, treat all human beings as part of this interconnected family that God's made, and that as part of the wider family that includes all of creation as well. Um, and therefore, I can't ignore how my actions ripple effect on other people as well, um, as much as we might like to imagine that because you're free, you can do whatever you want, and it's just whatever you choose to do. It doesn't matter how it affects somebody else. Th that's, not, that's not biblical thinking, at least. That's, that's, not, that's not classically Christian thinking about... Um, how we're supposed to take care of the world and of each other. I guess I think, too, that all the things that we've named so far are things that would require, and I'm a little bit afraid to say this out loud, intentional slowing down. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it, it would mean a revaluing of what is more important in life, like maximizing productivity with the number of hours I've officially worked on a job, or is it better to have a certain amount of time in my life that doesn't look productive or doesn't benefit the bottom line of the company's third quarter profits report, but was time that I was in my garden, where it's the part of the year that I can garden, or the time that it takes to wash out glass containers and reuse them rather than just throwing away one-time use plastic things, or the time it takes to sort things for recycling or whatever. That's a loss of productive time, or that's a loss of me time. And yep, yeah, it is. But that also puts us back in tune closer maybe with the rhythms of what like created life is supposed to be to me again I, I, maybe this is just because I'm a huge Wendell Berry fan but so much of reading his poetry as well as his novels is that he's one of those voices in my life who as a Christian as someone who's a follower of Jesus and is is enamored by the story and the wisdom of the New Testament has this sense of like we're made for not this breakneck drive to consume kind of way of life and yet we keep chasing after that thinking that maybe we'll be happier if I own something bigger or a larger TV or more TVs and that maybe that doesn't actually make us happier and maybe that actually ruins the creation that we've been living in but it requires a, a radical reevaluation of what's important in life and a willingness sometimes yeah to sacrifice profits over the ability to reuse your glass and the additional time it takes to do that make you know make that kind of a trip to a bulk food store instead of the, the quick uh, prepackaged thing. I mean, that, that it requires a change in our attitude and the way that we live. And to be honest, there's a lot of voices in our culture that seem like they're upset at the idea that anybody would ever suggest that you should have that kind of moderation. Like, there are voices that are like, you can't tell me what to do, and freedom means I can be as wasteful as I want to be because it's my money and it's my time and it's my life and you can't tell me what to do. And again, to me, like that seems like that has that has veered off from what at least biblical sense of stewardship uh, creation justice is. Yeah, I think for me, the bottom line is we need to take care of God's creation. Like that's what we've been called to do, but it's not easy. Like I think saying it out loud of we need to take care of God's creation that's easy. To that's do. the easiest part of it, <laughs> right? Right, but the actual doing of it is tremendously difficult because I know of all of the things that we've listed today, I maybe do half of them, right? Like I don't have a garden, which is in part because I don't own property, so it's mm -hmm. hard to have a garden when you don't own property. Um, you know, I don't have access to a bulk food store. Um, I recycle as much as I can, but our county doesn't recycle all of the plastics, mm -hmm. and that makes it difficult. Um, 
you know, it, it's hard to care for God's creation, I think, in the way that we all know in the back of our heads that we should be doing. Um, but it's, it's difficult. I think it's taking it one step at a time and continue to try to make forward progress and be, become better yeah. instead of just saying, yep, this is where I am, this is where I'm going to stay, but like, let's work towards being better. I was just thinking as you were describing it that maybe part of how the attitude change is to, to think of this in terms of the little things we do for the, the people that we love. Like I, I, I think like um, sometimes when I go to the grocery store um, – I think to myself, oh, I bet we're running low on cream. I should buy some. Not because I drink my drink, my coffee black, but my wife drinks coffee with cream. And I think to myself, she's not asked me to, but this is something that I bet we'll need and I bet we'll make her afternoon brighter because there will be cream in the house rather than none. And that's good all around. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten in the habit of trying to stop when I'm at the grocery store to think about that. There's a list of like five or six things of like, oh, I don't need if I need this, but someone, does someone else in, in the house need this? And it's become like this, this little habit of stopping to ask. And again, I'm not like, pro-consumers and just buy more stuff but to think there are these little steps that like if we would think about why we do why we take the extra step of recycling or of you know making as many things in one round trip as possible or whatever like these are little ways of saying part of what it is to love your neighbor and part of what it is to love creation these these little small gestures and if we get it that there are little small gestures that communicate love in our day-to-day life with our family then maybe it's worth it like oh all these other little things it's not i'm doing this because i've been guilted into it but these are little ways of loving my neighbor and these are little ways of loving the god who has made this world for me that that at least gives me a, a stronger reason for why it's worth making the effort i guess and i think if you take those little steps even when things aren't available to us like you know mm-hmm. the fact that the counties that we live in don't recycle all plastics um maybe someday that will change and so if you're taking those little steps now and getting yourself into that habit when those when that that might change, then you're already in the habit. Sure. Oh, I put my ones and my number ones and number two plastics in recycling. Now I can put all plastics in the recycling. Sure. Yeah. You know, you're already in that habit. So just taking advantage of the little things you can do at least is a step in the right direction. Yeah. And I think too, it also helps break down the counter argument of, oh, it's so tedious. Like, cause you'll run into other people. It's like, oh, it's just too much time. And I, and like, if we could be part of our regular routine is no, it's no big deal. I do it. And, uh, whether it's recycling, whether it's ta- remembering to take a cloth back to the grocery store, which I'm terrible at remembering. And so we get a bunch of like, you know, one time you sh- shopping bags or whatever, but like all these little, little, little things, um, it, 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 at some point, allows for the possibility of being a groundswell for there to be change. So that, I mean, how, how does a community end up deciding it's worth investing in having recycling of all plastics, except that people eventually say, this is something that matters to us, we would like to do it, even if it costs us, we would like to, and so we can be those voices so that, um, just just to like to, to, I guess, defuse that possible counter-argument of, oh, it's just so tedious, Why, who, who has the time for that? If we can be the voice, well, I make the time because I think it's important, that helps you know, uh, stop that tide of who cares or it doesn't matter, I guess. So we hope you'll join us for further conversations. We're going to be looking at other ways that justice shapes our actual lived out lives, hopefully in concrete, uh, practical ways as much as possible as we go along the way. But uh, we hope you'll join us for this series here on Crazy Faith Talk. Yeah.